We care about our land more than somebody down in Ottawa. A land code puts the First Nation into the power of government. The biggest point for me is your ability to protect your reserves lands. Former chief of our community had the vision to sign uh, and the guts to sign that framework agreement. Business at the pace of business. I think it just proves that First Nations lands management really is working. The good thing about land code, we don't have to sell it. It sells itself. Welcome to Land Decolonized, where we explore the practical side of the Framework Agreement on First Nation Land Management. I'm Richard Perry. Twenty years ago, a small First Nation community in the Durham region of Ontario took a leap of faith by approving its own land code. What did that mean to the people of Scugog Island First Nation? A great deal, says Chief Kelly LaRocca, who went away to study law but came back to build upon the successes of those who helped lay the foundation for progress. Here's our conversation. And joining me right now from Mississaugas of Scugog Island, First Nation, in Ontario, is Chief Kelly LaRocca. Chief, welcome to the podcast. Anine, hello. I was really excited to hear that we'd be speaking because I know you're extremely passionate about land code and its history and what it's done for your community. Can you take me back to the very beginning? I know it's before your time as chief, but what was the impetus that led to a land code? Well, back in the day, um, before the framework agreement was signed, my uncle, former chief Gary Edgar, was looking at ways to increase our economic development opportunities here in the community. And he really struck while the iron was hot, so to speak. They were looking at proliferating gaming opportunities within the province. And it was an NDP government at the time, so very favorable to First Nations generally. And my uncle saw it as an opportunity to bid uh, on behalf of our community and as a community on the opportunity to have gaming in Scugog, First Nation. So he had to then figure out, well, how can we move at the speed of business, which we often say at the uh, Lands Management Board, how can we make sure that red tape is not going to get in the way of opening business in the community, particularly something as heavily regulated as gaming? So my uncle then connected with a lot of his colleagues uh, back in the day, uh, former chief of West Bank First Nation and chair of the Lands Management Board, Rob Louie, uh, as well as Austin Bear, uh, Chief Austin Bear, I should say, and um, and uh, former Chief um, Bill McHugh of Georgian Island, they really put their heads together to try and figure out how can we get out from the Indian Act lands management or lands provisions, and how can we basically enable land self-governance in our reserve territory communities which would enable us to open economic development opportunities within our communities without waiting on the Minister of Indian Affairs to rubber stamp or give his or her approval, as the case may be. So that was the uh, the small think tank that was put together in the original days. Sure. And, uh, you know, a lot of our communities across Canada had very little and uh, were relying on the collective grit of their communities to take take risk, basically. And my uncle saw lands management as the vehicle towards uh, negotiating a new way forward where he as chief and the council and the community itself would have the opportunity to govern 
our own lands for ourselves and by ourselves. So it was actually very uh, timely for him, given the uh, bids for gaming were were um, had arrived uh, in Ontario at the time. And, and uh, in 1996, I believe it was, the framework agreement was signed originally by 14 First Nations with the federal government. And then... And that was the very first group that went this route, right? Indeed, yes. Yeah. And... It was their it was their uh, responsibility after signing on to really develop collectively um, land codes for each of their communities, which, to put it in other terms, basically operate as your First Nations constitution or supreme law of the land. And Scugog was one of the three uh, original communities to pass its land code. Uh, in the year 2000. And um, Georgina Island was first, and then Scugog. Uh, and we always joke with Georgina Island saying we were actually the first, but it really doesn't matter. We all <laughs> did very well. And, and so the land codes were passed in 2000. And that uh, really uh, was a, an achievement of Scugog First Nation, particularly because even though we are a small First Nation, and at that time, we're definitely a small membership. Um, it's hard to get unanimity over over um, lands management when the fear is around, well, hang on a sec. All we've known for the last while, at least since the first iteration of the Indian Act, are the Indian Act provisions. And so what's this going to mean for us? Um, and there's a lot of you know, fear of the unknown and who could blame the community for having that at the time. Um, you know, people were wondering, is this just another form of Indian Act? Is it actually going to do anything for us? Is it going to um, create imbalances of power? How is this going to actually affect our, our community as we know it? And our community had to take a risk. And under Gary's leadership and the council's leadership with him, uh, the community uh, took a leap, <laughs> and I'm really glad they did because it's been an absolute pleasure to serve as the chief at Scugog of a community that is dynamic and was made dynamic by its uh, entering into lands management and all the opportunities that have come therefrom. Right. So uh, if we go back to, I guess, before what land code, I think it was 1997 or thereabouts, you opened the Great Blue Heron Casino, was that? Yes, how many jobs has that created? So we are the second largest employer in the region of Durham. Um, and we have 1,100 employees at the Great Blue Heron. I believe um, since 2016, they had a change in operation uh, and management of the facility. And so I believe since that date, those employment numbers have changed um, slightly. But still, we are the second largest employer in Durham region. And, you know, I would say consistently over the last 20 years have employed in and around 1,100 people at that facility. Very significant. Wow. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, when Land Code was first introduced, there's, of course, lots of consultation, community engagement. Were you there in the community then or were you out at school somewhere? I was away at school. Um, I think I left the community in 1994 and uh, went off to the University of Western Ontario 
And then from there, in 1997, I went to law school at the University of Windsor, Faculty of Law, and studied there. And so, yes, I was away. I was away during that time when, when all that activity was happening. Do you remember much about the engagement and how you first learned about Lang Code and what you thought of it at the time? I do remember, actually, because my uh, my mother, uh, Valerie LaRocca, she was very, uh, she and my uncle Gary were very close. And so when all of that work was being done by Gary and and really the council and the staff here in the First Nation, he would talk a lot about it with my mom. And uh, my mom, having a great deal of faith in me, she would come to me and ask me what my opinion was and what I thought about <laughs> about this or that. And uh, it was actually very good. It kind of forced me to form an opinion, (laughs) forced me to get engaged and re-engaged with my community. Because of course, when you go away to school, you're in a bit of a bubble. But uh, it was was really a great opportunity to get re-engaged with the community and and realize the complete uh, opportunity for growth that uh, was being fostered and created was quite an exciting time. Now, um, in terms of economic development, has Scugog gone further than the casino and entered into any commercial arrangements or have you set up industrial parks, light commercial, anything like that? Yes. So since the Great Blue Heron, um, our community under former uh, chief Tracy Gauthier, we decided to really focus on health and education. That was our main priority uh, after we got the casino up and running under Gary's leadership. And uh, we, you know, sort of got our sea legs, as it were, under uh, former Chief Rennie Goose's leadership. Tracy Goche became chief and really wanted to take that that wealth that was generated and pour it into our people through um, health and uh wellness programming, as well as education. So that was really the focus, I would say, during Tracy's term as chief. And uh, she just really wanted to focus on the people, which I thought was really great. And of course, I'm one of those people who greatly benefited by the the educational opportunities that were afforded to people if they chose to work for them. So that... uh, that I will ever forever be grateful to my community. And um, yeah, so that was her focus. And then I came onto the council in 2008 as a counselor and uh, worked with uh, Tracy Goche and, and former counselor Della Charles. And we, you know, kept that education and health funding going, but really decided to look at other infrastructure needs in the community so we decided to focus our efforts and energies on uh, sort of base strategy and planning for clean water because the Mississaugas of Skugog Island First Nation has been without clean uh, drinking water since 2008 consistently. Before that, they were on you know the subject of periodic boil water advisories and drinking water advisories. So we felt it was important to obviously get clean water um, the, the Scugog, uh, First Nation, uh, the Great Blue Heron Casino on Scugog First Nation had its own water treatment plant and system. 
so, you know, obviously it had clean water for itself and the patrons, but the community itself needed clean water. So we decided to focus on our energies on that. And I'm really proud to say that uh, we're just finishing the, commis- the commissioning phase of our new uh, amazing water tower and water treatment plant. So I'm very happy about that. That is uh, literally just finished in the last month. And uh, so that's been a big project over many years and uh, the product of a lot of hard work of a number of people. So, yeah. and, and our community, you know, they supported it. They supported the work being done and, and uh, it's just been a, a good project all around. Aside from that, we've uh, created an economic development corporation, a limited partnership actually called the NNLP or News Who Nokian Limited Partnership. And that's been ongoing um, as a startup organization. So a lot of pre-planning was needed in the original days, but it has been ongoing for almost three years. And it oversees our commercial operations on reserve with respect to a Tim Hortons uh, facility that we have, as well as uh, Manisi Convenience uh, and Gift Shop. And so that's been really great. Uh, And they manage other lease lease opportunities from other businesses such as a gas station and and yeah it's been a it's been a very good project to try and get up and running to again keep moving at that speed of business and allow for greater opportunity for Skugog. I saw you in a speech talking about the engagement of youth in the community and the fact that land code has certainly helped bring more young young people into the community and has especially developed a stronger interest in local politics. Is that, uh, does that still hold true? I think for us here at Scugog, because we're such a small community, like we have 236 members in total with approximately 65 members on reserve. The rest of our membership off reserve reside mostly in the majority of Niagara, Toronto region, as well as Vancouver region. And so that makes for interesting community consultation. Boy, oh boy, yeah. A lot of travel. But the youth in those, you know, on reserve, but also off reserve in those other areas, I think have been greatly engaged in the the education and training opportunities that have been afforded through lands management and the work we've done under lands management. And so we, again, being such a small community, we've, I don't want to say I don't want to say our youth's time is completely taken up with school, but in large part it is, which is exactly the design. That's exactly what we wanted. But they are definitely getting more involved. I I can tell you we've had the best uh, turnout of young people and, and our people in general um, online. They're, they're getting involved and getting engaged in community meetings. And uh, so that's been very promising. Um, certainly social media is led by the youth. <laughs> So yeah. <laughs> we're really taking lessons from them. Which, I, see, uh, I see you're on Twitter. That's a good thing. Well, I, I'm barely on Twitter. I haven't <laughs> been paying as much attention to it. And, and probably the, the community youth would would uh, slap me on the wrist for that. But I... Uh, well, I, I started following you yesterday, so I'll make sure you're keeping folks up to speed. Yeah, put it out there. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try and put more content on there. My apologies. But... Um, yeah, I think the youth, what, what land management, I think, has done is it's engaged our youth um, because they're looking, they used to see the community as something that people, unfortunately, would leave, right? 
historically we had we would have to leave to find work we would have to lead leave to find uh, schooling opportunities of course because there are no uh, schools in, in our community and so now I think they're realizing oh my gosh I could sit on the economic development board for Scugog. I could sit on the trust board for Scugog. I could run on council. I could, uh, you know, I could obtain work in the community other than only at the band office. There are other opportunities for work in the community. And so they're looking at Scugog as a place that's almost full circle where yes, they will leave the community to go out and gain education and working experience, but they will boomerang back to the community to fulfill that uh, contribution. And so I'm really, I'm seeing that I'm hearing it a lot from our young adults who want opportunities. And uh, so, yeah, it's really, it's, I think we're in a transition into uh, a new segment of our youth getting to that point where they're ready to join the workforce full time and uh, really dig their teeth into their careers. So it's, it's an exciting time from the youth's perspective. I think it was chief Clarence Louie from Osoyoos uh, who said once that if the biggest employer in your community is the band office, you're doing something wrong. You need to get out there and create other economic opportunities. So you've clearly taken that and you run with it then. We're doing our best. I also feel it's very important, um, you know, in spite of our small size, we have a lot of services we offer. And so we need people to run those services effectively, obviously, and make sure that they're delivered properly and, and appropriately to the community. And so, yes, uh, I, I agree with Chief uh, Clarence Louis. I, I, think, I think he's right. But I also think it's really important to, uh, of course, the positions in your band office your goal is to um, to get your own people working, you know, again, for your own people, by your own people, doing it ourselves. That instills that sense of pride in the community that, uh, that we're aiming for. In my conversations with, I guess, seven or eight other chiefs now, they've, they've all talked about business at the speed of business, of course. Mm-hmm. But the second most common theme seems to be about environmental protection in your communities and the protection of culturally sensitive or sacred sites. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that's been an interesting uh, topic of conversation here in Scugog because we've been in, more recently engaged in a land use plan process in our community. And it's been a long process. Land use planning is very controversial. It involves a lot of different opinions for different reasons and different perspectives. And so, you know, it's controversial in the mainstream, let alone in a First Nations community, right? Because we all have different visions of how land should be most properly used or untouched as the case may be. And so finding a delicate balance between lands that are commercially, um, you know, segmented off for commercial purposes versus servicing the community services like the water treatment plant or other infrastructure versus private residential housing. I mean, that that's a delicate dance. Of course, um, certificates of possession or certificates CBs, of allocation. Yeah. I think they're called certificates of allocation now under the, uh, the land code. Um, or the old CP, that presents a bit of a challenge, of course, because your your First Nation does have CP land regardless. And so you have to really account for that in your land use planning and just make sure that you strike a, strike a balance with everybody in the community. And when you have things like 
wild rice or traditional medicines or animals that were that are being hunted in certain spaces and places you know it's often not uh you don't find anyone putting their hands up saying pick me pick me i'd like to tell you where i hunt (laughs) i think you asked them didn't you to go to a map and circle where they like to go yes and you know i'm practically begging people please tell me uh tell me where your ceremonial sites are tell me where the plants are that you harvest tell me where you're hunting you know my my mother passed on and uh she uh, was a former leader in the community herself. I mentioned her name, Valerie LaRocca. She, when she passed on, she said, I want my, my, I want my ashes spread in the tree line behind our house. That's where I used to play when I was a kid. So that's what we did, of course. But you have to tell people these things uh, in a public way in the, in, you know, in front of the community so that people know where they shouldn't be building and making decisions to, right. to build as, as uh, leadership and as a community. So that's been an interesting exercise. We we did our land use plan. It's always a moving target. And as people would say, a living tree, it, it, it grows with time and changes. So uh, that's always a work in progress. I think when you have governance over your own territory, you can constantly have that ability to look at it, plan for it, do your consultations, come up with a plan, and then relook at that plan every year to make sure it's still uh, adequately addresses your needs, but also is reflect most reflective of your, of your community's interests and desires, right? So sure. that's part of the beauty of lands management really is you have that freedom uh, to do that work. I also, um, I think it's really important. Uh, lands management is, I always looked at it and I'm not sure that all would agree with me, but I've always looked at it as a form of uh, self-government. It's self-government over your First Nation territory land, but it's also incremental self-government in that it's not a full-blown self-government agreement um, as we would see, say, in in out west. So I think that um, in that nature, in that sense, it's incremental, which makes it comfortable for people to enter into and learn about and live within, um, you know, without having a whole-scale sea change of how things operate in the community. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it's really suited Scugog for that reason. Are you surprised at all nationally at the uptake of land code? Because I think I read that probably one in three First Nations has either adopted land code or is in the developmental phase or is trying to get on the list. Mm-hmm. I'm is not that- surprised by that because I think um, we have, you know, conferences every year. We do a lot of reporting online. and And so – people are witnessing the success of the communities that that have been in in lands management for uh, for quite some time and you know the success is quite readily apparent and first nations you know i think have more confidence in lands management than they did in the original days and fair enough uh, it you know everything was new and and change is very difficult um, for for anyone right so it, it's uh, no surprise that in the original days, people weren't racing to the door to be part of it <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> because sure. it was new, new and uncertain. Um, but now I think the proof is in, uh, is in how well the communities are doing and the outcomes they're having. And so far as, you know, infrastructure, business, education, health outcomes, et cetera, you can really, really see the, the strength of the communities that have gone through lands management for a number of years. Yeah. 
So where to from here for Scugog Island First Nation? I mean, does the land code, the, that 34-page document, live on the website and that's it? Or is it constantly being adjusted or modified? Uh, that's a great question. We're actually in the process of looking, or I should say relooking at our land code for the first time in, in a couple of decades, basically, when it was first passed. And we're looking at just you know, you know, taking the dust off of it, which yeah. by the way, is a great sign. Uh, I always say the best contract is one that has an inch thick of dust on it because that means nobody's upset and nobody's disputing it. And you just let it, let it live there and people are <laughs> fine with it. Uh, our, so we're looking at our land code uh, now just to make sure it's reflective of um, all the different laws and policies that we've built in the community since the adoption of the land code. And uh, just, you know, really taking a look and seeing how we want to um, frame things in the land code around um, issues like um, the expropriation of land for services. So we just built a water treatment plant. We want to make sure that um, we can, service people without getting into issues there around uh, expropriation. Obviously, we're not going to be expropriating anyone's land. It's just, again, a very small expropriation model for, for services only. Um, and there's a bit of a framework around how we would engage uh, members in the community around that. Um, just so, you know, again, it's uber clear and transparent to everyone in the community. And um, yeah, so we're, we're looking at the land code. I, again, I think it's a healthy thing, especially as we look at our, we look at the land use plan we did and just, again, make sure that it meets our needs. Um, but for Scugog, I can say from a project perspective, we're looking, uh, we're looking at a beautiful piece of property that we purchased that is adjacent to our reserve. It's fee simple land, mind you, but um I think we're we're going to end up trying to build a uh, a center there for um, not only cultural tourism but some kind of educational component where we talk about um, things like you know indigenous uh, rights, the lands uh, management uh, regime, but also um, treaties and. Uh, all those all those issues that we want uh, the wider community to under have a better understanding about. So I'm I'm looking forward to that project with the community. Um, we're doing a wastewater expansion, so we're expanding some services within the community to our community homes, and that's very exciting. Uh, and we're looking at uh, environmental an environmental management regime, uh, so environmental laws to uh, just strengthen those and really. Um, focus on that because we've our, our attention is is uh, a bit tapped as first nations leaders but as first nations communities in general the issues are so wide ranging that uh, it's often your your spinning plates trying to mm -hmm. just uh, make sure everything is is keeps moving and is safe but uh, and then we've got the whole pandemic situation slowing things down and making us <laughs> readjust things on the fly exactly yeah. it's actually been obviously extremely tough on our communities, on our people. It's lends, lends huge cause for concern for everyone, but on some level from an organizational perspective, it's lent pause to uh, the things we've been working on. So that, uh, that center that I mentioned uh, that we're looking to build now, we, we get an opportunity to look at it and think, okay, 
well, what happens if, if there's a second wave or even another pandemic? I mean, how do we design infrastructure projects, structures in general around um, this, this big lesson of COVID? So yeah, it's an interesting time. <laughs> well, we wish you luck with your new projects. And uh, it's amazing what you have on the fly just uh, for such a, a small community. So want to thank small you. Small but mighty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we appreciate your time, Chief Kelly Rocket. Thank you very much. Miigwech. Thank you. The Land Decolonized Podcast is brought to you by the First Nations Land Management Resource Center and is supported by the Land Advisory Board. For up-to-date information on the progress of the land code movement across Canada, including governance tools and training, visit labrc.com. I'm Richard Perry. Thank you for listening. The Land Decolonized Podcast is brought to you by the First Nations Land Management Resource Center and is supported by the Land Advisory Board. For up-to-date information on the progress of the land code movement across Canada, including governance tools and training, visit labrc.com. I'm Richard Perry. Thank you for listening.